0: And now, coming to you live from the depths of indecision, two men with no idea what they're going to talk about, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on The Good Street Podcast!
1: And we're back. Clueless. Exactly. If I could have stretched that opening for another hour, we'd be good. (laughs) Well, that would be a good idea, yeah. Um, All I did this week, uh, you did some real work, I did some real work, I did did some little work, I read some stuff. I'm reading a K.J. Parker collection of novellas, which is terrific. I went to see three movies, um, and I had a thought. Here's a thought, which I had I had right now as we're talking. Geek pedantry.
0: <laughs> yes. That's not
1: I'm guilty of it. I have been guilty of it. You've been guilty of it less than I have. Many of our dear friends are guilty of it. Um, and I'll tell you the two things that made me think of the issue of geek pedantry to which I'm, I'm not accusing anybody of this. I am copying a plea. I'm saying I've done this as badly as anybody. This whole podcast, a good portion of it is that the two things that made me think of it. Um, one of which I've forgotten. Uh, no, I just remembered it. Oh, this, good. um, That's this wonderful forthcoming collection of novellas called academic exercises. Yes. By KJ Parker includes three essays. Um, which he apparently published in Subterranean Online. One deals with swords, one deals with armor, and one deals with siege engines. And they are they are geek-out essays. They're everything you wanted to know about swords, and they're well-written, and they're sharp, and they're uh, informative, and it fills in a lot of background in his uh, stories and novels, which he doesn't have to fill in in the novels. It's, it's, I think, one of the things, footnote to fantasy writers, write essays and put all the stuff there and you don't have to have pages of exposition. Um,
0: see, you make me want to email KJ and ask her if she has an enormous collection
1: of lead soldiers now. Um, that would be interesting. We could, we could, we could stage a virtual lead soldier war between collections. You mean mean between KJ Parker and, um, George George Martin? Yes, absolutely. Well, okay. Here's, here's, here's the, um, Geek pedantry issue that I can't answer. Uh, These to me were just informative essays. I know I took medieval history in college. I didn't know anything close to this amount of information about uh, swords and siege engines and, and armor. And I thought that there's probably, there are people out there that I know that I could name Mm. who spent a lot of time worrying about medieval armaments. Uh, And probably could find something wrong with these essays or something to disagree about with these essays. Um, I can't. I'm willing to take K.J. Parker's Mm -hmm. work that he or she has been studying this, writes about it with enormous clarity, and therefore I'm not going to try to correct it. Um, In other words, I'm willing to bow to the pedantry involved in those very entertaining essays. Mm Mm-hmm. That's one aspect of geek pedantry. The other aspect has to do with um, movies. I saw three movies this week, and the three movies I saw were Maleficent, um, Edge of Tomorrow, the most absolutely nondescript title (laughs) of any movie in the last 40 years, and How to Train Your Dragon 2. Ooh, I, I want to see that one. That was the best of the three. I'm sure it was. That was easily the best of the three um and it was the best of the three because it was celebratory it was fun it was beautiful to look at um and i and and, and okay and, and and so i was i was um, with my friend stacy and we were talking about we were doing some geek pedantry things we were saying like okay these vikings have horns on their helmets come on every geek in the world knows that vikings didn't actually have horns on their helmets and and we think, well, so what? This, these are cart. and the point. These are cartoon Vikings. There aren't any real dragons either, but they have those in the movie. So why complain about it?
0: Well, I think your pedantry in that in- that instance is actually misdirected, and I'll tell you why. Uh, okay. In the instance of How to Drain Your Dragon 2, which I've not seen, of course the Vikings should have horns on their helmets because the archetypal comic or cartoon Viking does have. Uh, horns on his helmet, and always has. It's not got nothing to do with historical reality. You would be breaking the conventions of cartoon vikingdom if you didn't have horns on your
1: helmet. Okay, you just met a geeked geek pedantry. I mean, that is that is more pedantic than what I was saying. You're absolutely right. Thank you. These are not Vikings. These are pop culture Vikings. The one the, the one thing which I cannot explain in this movie, and when you see it, and, and you should see it with the kids because they will like it as well. You want to explain to me why Vikings speak with Scottish brogues? Because there were Vikings in the far north of Scotland. Okay, that takes care of it. I'm fine. See, I'm satisfied with explanations like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hang on. But do you also realize there is no actual island called Burke? I didn't think there was an island called Burke.
0: This is important because, you know, we're not, you know, we, we, before we get historically geeked out uh, and talk, I mean, I, I will say I doubt there are ever actual Vikings with Scottish accents because whilst the Vikings did get to far, to, to Scotland, if I, understand, if I remember correctly, they certainly, I don't think they settled there for any period of time and would have picked up the local brogue um, in the way they do in How to Train Your Dragon. But it is also fiction.
1: Well... I think that's part of the point I'm getting at, is that this is a, a it, it's a kind of pop culture expression which is meant to resonate with what people think they know about Vikings. Kids, yeah. you're absolutely right. Kids will have seen pictures of Vikings in books. I'm assuming that kids' nonfiction books about Vikings no longer have um, the horns and, 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 and the various other things. They've probably seen things on television. So that is entirely reasonable. Now, the second kind of geek pedantry... Uh, which we is a game we all play when we go to see a movie like Edge of Tomorrow uh, because several of the reviews and several of the comments I've seen online about Edge of Tomorrow say, well, it ripped off the central idea from Groundhog Day and combined that with the central idea from Starship Troopers. Um, but Groundhog Day, oh, this is me being pedantic, mm-hmm. You know, Groundhog Day really came very close to having the same plot as a famous Richard, well, at one time, famous Richard Lupoff story called Before 1201 and After, about a person condemned to relive the same day over and over And an weekend. awful lot like uh, replay by Ken Grimwood, too. And an awful lot like replay by, uh, yeah, it's true, absolutely. So, in other words, the idea has been around. Oh, sure. Uh, and, and And claiming that an idea is not a... This, this this is where this is where I lose patience with geek pedantry, mm. claiming that an idea in a Hollywood movie is not original, is not worth doing. <laughs> well, yes, that's it. It's not that you're it's, wrong. It's just, what are you even wasting your time for? Yeah. I don't bother.
0: But then, um, but surely the question isn't what you um, whether the idea is original. The, the as the old saw would have it, it's what you do with it. You know. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know if you're aware on a completely sort of unrelated thing that there was a conflict between Don Henley of the Eagles and Frank Ocean, the pop singer, because Mr. Ocean took the original master track to the Eagles Hotel California, lifted the vocals off it, uh, put his own vocal on top of their uh, music track and then called it a new song and then was surprised when Mr. Henley sued him. That's kind of the extended version of sampling, isn't it? Yeah, but I think I think you reach you go beyond the point of sampling into well, it's just really
1: yeah, no, yeah, okay, I I, I can see that, but I can also see that um, if you read a lot of science fiction, it's very difficult to see a movie that doesn't seem like a collage of ideas you've read many times before. Sure, sure, and so the the thing that struck the the basic idea, the basic um, conceit of Edge of Tomorrow. I understand, by the way, they retitled the film from its original title because the original title echoed unfavorably uh, with the news after the Colorado movie theater shootings. Oh, okay. The original title was something like, All You Need Is Kill, um, which is possibly even worse than Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> but the basic conceit is that uh, really uh, scary... Aliens with wavy mechanical tentacles have attacked earth and are taking over. And the only way to defeat them is for Tom Cruise to die over and over and over again until he learns the right technique to get through the enemy yeah. armament. Um, so and this is where you can pick or choose among science fiction sources. Yeah. Most people that I've seen talking about the film look at the film about somebody who has to live live the same day over and over and over again yeah um, if you look at the film as somebody who has to die repeatedly in order to learn yep. the ancestor of the film is all, all just Budrus's novel rogue moon yes and that strikes me as being a more profound idea both in in Budras's novel and in the film than the simple gimmick of let's recycle a day over and over and over again yeah, yeah. in other words uh, and and, and it, so it made me think about Budrus's novel, which I think is um, one of those classics that has sort of faded in and out of focus over the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Um, and that for a while it was a classic, and then several people said, well, it's not as good as some of his other novels, and then people say it's overrated, and then people say it's a classic again. And you begin to realize that what a science fiction writer characteristically does with an idea like this is... To use it as an engine to explore, uh, in the case of Budras, a group of very unsympathetic characters mm. and their attitudes toward life and death and learning and so forth and so on. Um, and in a sense, what we've seen in you know, in, in that tradition is, is not just a, a, a gimmick about how you have to die in order to learn, but a sort of tradition of writing really unsympathetic characters and getting away with it in science fiction. Novels, because to some extent you have to make the characters unsympathetic in order to kill them off without the reader being too upset.
0: Yes, that that's reasonably fair. I mean, because the last thing you want to be doing is killing off major sympathetic character after one after the other, the way George Martin does. Um,
1: yeah, uh, but but uh, M. John Harrison, for example, is very careful not to make very many of the characters sympathetic up front, so <laughs> you kill them. Eh.
0: But, but on the other hand, then, what you're telling me is that the, the map to reading a book by Mike Harrison or somebody like him is that when you hit the sympathetic character, you know, they're going to make it till the end.
1: Um, I don't think that's – no, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily true at all. I think the key to reading a Mike Harrison novel is that if you come across a sympathetic character, you're probably missing something. <laughs> Let me bring you back to the beginning of this. You said
0: you're reading Academic Exercises by K.J. Parker, right? Uh Uh-huh. Which, if I was pushed, I would have said at the beginning of the year, before any books came out and we were reading stuff, was likely to be the
1: best fantasy collection, at least, of the year. Um, How are you finding it? I think it's... I was going to... I have not written a review of it yet, but one of the things I was going to say in the review was uh, it's certainly one of the most important fantasy collections of the year. Now, can we pedantically parse the difference between the best of the year and one of the most important of the year? Uh, I, I, I do believe we've got 192 episodes
0: that do something not unlike that, Gary. Uh, but, okay. <laughs> but just for oh, a moment, for sure. let's let's try that, that piece of parsing.
1: It, it, it raises two issues, and this, this is an issue that's come up again with Parker and it's come up uh, with um, different writers, and it came up when we talked to Joe Abercrombie a couple of weeks ago. Um, some of these stories... A lot of them clearly involve a world he's invented, the kind of middle European sort of Greco-Roman world in which uh, there is an educational establishment called the studium and you go there to learn to be an adept. And one of the running jokes throughout these stories is that there are no wizards, there are no sorcerers, there are only natural philosophers, and that's what we study in college. They're very funny stories in, mm. in many ways. Um but, but there are also a few stories uh, which take place in this world but contain no fantastic events or beings. Yeah. They don't have dragons in them. They don't have uh, magical adepts in them. Uh, and one of the most famous of these, the one that won the World Fantasy Award, is a small price to pay for birdsong. Yes. yes. Which is um, a brilliant, I think, study of... Uh, Musical genius and mentorship and betrayal and Just astonishing arrogance that could clearly have been written um And set in 18th century, vienna. Yeah, it does not need to be set in this world Um, and there are a couple of other stories in it as well. So the question that keeps coming up is Are those fantasy stories or are those simply? Stories mainstream stories that make use of a venue that the author has already invented For convenience
0: now, this of course is a question that was raised about I think it was exactly that exactly that story by our friend Paul Kincaid in his Mm -hmm. LA Times book review uh, column and I've not heard a coherent or Considered response to it that's really satisfied me because it's essentially okay. A small price to pay for birdsong strikes me as being essentially a mainstream story that's in an acknowledged fantasy secondary world,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so becomes I oh, guess what fantasy by association, you know. Because imagine okay, imagine you are in any of the any of the great fantasy worlds, right? Whatever mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter whether Narnia or wherever, and you happen to encounter a story that no magic happens in. But mm-hmm. you're in Narnia, right? That's what this is.
1: Um, well, I, I suppose that's reasonable in in the sense that you have a you have a fantasy world which we have been invited into through a portal. That is, the yeah. Narnia stories begin with a portal into another world. Sure. And once you're in that other world, things can happen that don't necessarily. Um, Involve fantastic events. I think that the distinction, though, is is, is a fairly recent one because, you know, to some extent, the model for the imaginary country, um, the one that's frequently cited by scholars is Anthony Hope's Ruritania, uh, Prisoner of Zenda, and that sort of thing. It's a fictional Middle European country. It's not a fantasy story at all. He just didn't want to name a country. Yeah. And I think you could say the same thing a century later when Ursula Le Guin wrote Orsinian Tales. Yeah. That you sort of situated somewhere, but it's not really there. So, so the tradition of of putting essentially realistic narratives in non-realistic settings uh, is 100 or 200 years old, I suppose. Is that different now because we recognize fantasy as a genre, because we recognize... Um, for example, the um, uh, the setting of the KJ Parker stories or the setting of Narnia as a fantasy setting, and therefore anything that takes place within that world is a fantasy story.
0: Probably, I mean, there are openly fantastical things that happen in some of the stories, mm-hmm. and we are in that world. Yeah, I mean, w- what I was going to say was, and it relates to what you're saying without answering it, I guess, is that by placing a story like Small Price to Pay for Birdsong, not only in the world of the studium, but in the same collection of stories as st- stories set in the world of the studium, mm. isn't that really staking it as being fantasy?
1: It's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, <clears throat> you're, you're there. Fi- okay, let's follow the logic of this. That means we're defining a, a genre or a mode of writing solely by setting. Not by the events in the story, not by the At characters time. in the story. At times. Yes. I think hmm.
0: I think that, that is possible. Uh, and what I'd say to you as well is I would bet you lunch that if you were to ask K.J. Parker whether she thinks that a small price to pay for birdsong is
1: fantasy... She wouldn't care. That I think might be the wisest answer of all, um, because that, that, that brings us back to the issue. Well, it bring, bring, brings us back to an issue which we've talked about in terms of other um, works this year. There are works that have shown up on the Nebula ballot, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, works like uh, like Hild, uh, Nicola Griffith's Hild, or works like uh, you know Andy Duncan and Ellen Klages's, um, um Wakulla Springs. Uh, but those are those are standalone works, by and large. Hilda's a historical novel, Wakulla Springs is kind of a historical story. This is a story which I think um, you're absolutely right. I think that Parker would say a small price to pay for Birdsong is a story about the relationships between these characters. And in this particular story, the relationships between these characters and the psychological perversities of at least one of the characters don't require fantasy they don't require Mm. any intervention other than what a character-based story would Uh, so to some extent that's a very valid argument that if you're writing a story about characters and you want to put them in this world why not i mean i
0: would say that if a small price price to pay for a bird song was a novel sorry to interrupt i do wonder mm -hmm. if you would find yourself waiting for the fantastical shoe to drop whether because, I think it's a, a lot of readers, because it's a short narrative, you, you, you're you not so much concerned about that.
1: I Well, I, th- I think one of the things that successful writers uh, do when they when they introduce this sort of thing, P- um, Peter Dickinson has written stories and novels that are set in fantastic roles and don't seem to be fantastic. I suspect there might be, no, Jack Vance wouldn't do that. But um, I, I, I think what's... What, what, what the basic aesthetic involved is, is that a character-based story set in a fantasy world or a historical world, which is only a slightly tweaked version of a fantasy world, meaning any historical environment we have is largely in, uh, imagined, that to some extent it's an irrelevant question. Mm. That this, it, It's an irrelevant question to that particular story. In other words, if a small price to pay for birdsong were the only story in this universe, uh-huh. um, I think we would still be compelled to accept it because sure. the specific historical setting, the specific cultural background, isn't what's important to the story. Uh, <laughs> and to some extent, what he's doing in that story with with a uh, kind of um, uh, version of eight, what do I take to be a version of 18th century Europe is not much different from those helmets those Viking helmets with horns
0: on it's not. I mean, I I will say there is a legitimate question here though,
1: and it actually Mm -hmm.
0: has to be pointed at me and I don't have a legitimate answer, which is a real problem. And the question isn't, is a small price for birdsong fantasy when it's set in the world of the studium, or Mm -hmm. is a small price to pay for birdsong fantasy when you read it in subterranean magazine, it's, is a small price to birdsong for a bird song, fantasy when you place it in the best science fiction fantasy of the year. And if it if it does belong in that book, why? What, what's the rationale? I mean, I think that's a question that troubled Paul Kincaid. He yeah, would say, I, it's not obviously fantasy. And the same for, I mean, two of the stories in this book have won the World Fantasy Award for Best Novella. Yeah. Uh, Let Maps to Others won last year. And looking at it, you'd sit there and go, well, there's no real objective fantasy why does it belong it's because it feels like fantasy and also because it represents something that's happening in the genre more and more where these elements and aspects of the fantastic whether it be the science fictional fantastic or the fantasy fantastic for clumsy way of putting it are being reused in all sorts of different ways by writers and that is part of our <clears throat> diaspora the diaspora that we're living through right now you know things like this fall within our remit
1: well, and this is where I think uh, this does get us back to the idea of of, of, of geek pedantry we started with. In a, in a sense, you're saying this is a conventionally accepted way of looking at a story which may or may not be literally defensible, but which is as defensible as those helm, as those horns on Viking helmets. In other words, yeah. this is a, wildly, a widely accepted version of a fantasy world, and therefore what happens in it is fair game for fantasy. Yeah. One of the stories we talked with, with Joe about this briefly. One of the stories you had in your own year's best <clears throat> was Joe's story, some kind of what was what's the title? Oh, some, some kind. Of, oh gosh, you've made me blank. That's embarrassing. <laughs> It'll come back to <laughs> But yeah, yeah, the you're the Abercrombie story, the Western. The Western. It's it's, it's a spaghetti Western. Um, it's a spaghetti Western which has, as far as I can tell, one or two words in it that indicate this is not the American West.
0: Yes, pretty um, much. That's, that's about right, I would say. And
1: the, yeah. the unicurrency is called the mark, and uh, apart from that, it, but but the point is, it's it has the affect of fantasy, and it um, it has the affect of, kind, of a kind of archetypally accepted mode of narration, which is what we might call the popular narrative. To some extent, the early stories, the very early stories of Stephen King's Dark Tower. Yeah had some of that spaghetti western. Very echoes much. In. Very very deliberately so for for that reason because he wanted to create a kind of really a kind of pop culture space, which is what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean I mean
0: certainly the, the Dark Tower to sort of you know bounce around felt in its early days like it came out of a Sergio Leone western. And that the man in the black man in black was you
1: know would have been Clint Eastwood at some point. Absolutely, but if you go back and Think about the Sergio Leone Westerns for a fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more on the good but They had a sense of fantasy about them as well. Very much. The Clint Eastwood character was very much of a piece with Stephen King's Man in Black, even before Stephen King started writing these things. So that's what I mean about a kind of, you know, mythical pop culture space. We accept the world of um, How to Train Your Dragon because it's familiar enough and it's funny enough and it works well enough that, that we can accept it. And I think in the same way we accept the historical settings of a K.J. Parker uh, story because that fits in a kind of cultural space that's, that, that, that's comfortable and that's, that's associated with fantasy. Uh, that being said, I suspect there are readers, uh, I know there are readers, who object to all these stories because they're saying, when is the shoe going to drop, as you said? Uh,
0: and I, I mean, I I do empathise with them to a point. I really do. Um, I mean, I would like to think that it, that it's possible in 2014 to put together a collection of stories or a, a, a recommendation list of books that say something interesting about the state of the genre at that point, and that are the cutting edge. Points where everything's being pushed and everything and i absolutely take on board uh paul kincaid's view or as i would paraphrase it from his article that really particularly the year's best science fiction should be absolutely identifiable science fiction absolutely showing the form being pushed and changed and evolved and not really be uh constructed out of edge cases and i mean i would accept the argument that a small price for birdsong for example is edge case fantasy really it is mm. um you know, but then you, this is again that geekery thing. What is your litmus test? What has to happen in a fantasy work or a science fiction work for it to be considered one or the other thing? Is it an act of extrapolation in science fiction? I don't think so because you got extrapolation in mainstream work. Is it the setting?
1: Not alone. You know. No, and there are settings that are certainly ambiguous. Uh-oh. Settings. There have always been novels that took place in mysterious parts of the world. The mm-hmm. W. H. Hudson's Green Mansions, for example, is—it feels like a fantasy world. It's—it's—it's it's, it's really a jungle somewhere in South America, supposedly. But um, so, 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 setting is not enough. i, I think what we're getting at here is—is—and I keep coming back to this idea of pedantry. And I'll—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll drop the geek from it because the geek is is demeaning and insulting even though we're all geeks together Mm. but the kind of pedantry that says you have to have one of 10 things happen in order for this to be a fantasy story or a science fiction story is inevitably a losing game and what it reminds me of a little bit was the beginning of um, the the transition in the 40s 50s and 60s from detective fiction into crime fiction Um, that is when Raymond Chandler began leaving one or two murders unsolved in his novels and then when um, writers like Elmore Leonard came along in which there were a lot of crimes committed and the detective wouldn't, couldn't solve the case. In other words, the, the idea was that the, the genre shifted from being mysteries in which there is a detective who solves a problem and the world is set to rights through rational action to a portrayal of a world that cannot be set to rights because rational action doesn't always provide answers. The crime novel will have the Elmore Leonard novel will have a lot of people killed in it. We know who kills them, but they're not brought to justice. Usually there's no detective at all. yeah And a lot of mystery readers, um, as I'm recalling, I remember reading essays about this, uh, were thinking this is a betrayal of the form. Yeah. But in a sense it wasn't a betrayal of the form, it was an extension of the form into Um, a broader worldview. And I think that's what we're seeing now with fantasy. And plainly science fiction as well. And plainly science fiction, possibly even more so with science fiction. Yeah. Uh,
0: The thing there though, is do you begin to lose shape of what science fiction is when that happens?
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, this is one of the things that, um, uh, because I was looking at your year's best, I was looking at Gardner's year's best. I have just received a copy of Rich Hortons and the first thing I, I, I will say, because I've said it actually for years in reviews, you get a different idea of what the shape of the field is when you look at every anthology. Yeah. Uh, not years best, but your view of the shape of the field is different from Gardner's, and Gardner's is different from Rich's, and I suspect all three of you are different uh, from mine. But if the shape of the field is defined as a kind of core set of values, let's say classic hard science fiction, or science fiction that deals... Um, with the kinds of uh, extrapolations and issues that Anne Leckie deals with in ancillary justice when you yep. talk to her. Yep. That core is still there. Yeah, The core is not going away. The shape of science fiction, if you want the shape of science fiction to look vaguely like something somewhere between Hal Clement and Jack Vance, there are people writing those stories. Yes. But then this is, words- yeah, sorry, continue, sorry. You, you, you could retain the shape of the field that you want. Uh, if you think science fiction should look like John Crowley stories, there are people writing John Crowley type stories. Yeah. Um, all I'm saying is that what it, 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 it's not changing the shape of the field. It's expa- it's expanding it. I would hesitate to use the word evaporating, but it's it's out there in more places than it used to be. I think that's true. I have to I apologize by the way
0: listeners if you hear someone singing off key in the background. It's because it's the four- this week was the 14th birthday of my uh, eldest daughter who was given an iPad mini and a set of headphones for her birthday and is now walking around the house singing her favorite pop hits without being able to hear herself. So, yeah, apologies for that. Anyway, she probably thinks she's great and she might be. More to the point, she doesn't care, which is magnificent. She's very happy, which is great, but there's That's an awful cool. lot of B-grade pop hits going on. But where were we? Yes, K.J. Parker and this, this, this whole defining fantasy. It, look, it's one of those discussions we constant, constantly have to have that never really matters. That was
1: pretty good. I heard that. Uh, no. It doesn't matter, but it's fun to have the discussion anyway because – and this this comes back to my – My notion of pedantry, from which I have now divorced the term geek, uh, people do get upset about it. People do get upset about uh, things getting nominated for science fiction awards that aren't science fiction, things getting nominated for fantasy awards that aren't fantasy. There are people who want to hold on to their version of the genre as they received it, as they shaped it. And I think that's probably more emotionally powerful in, in our field than it is in most others, because there's a certain point at which... You learned what science fiction was. You started reading these strange stories. Yeah. We'll pick up science fiction for a minute and leave fantasy for a Same thing's true with fantasy. You, you're reading the stories and you realize, okay, there's something that these stories have in common that I like. And so you look for more yep. stories like that. And eventually, even though as an 11 or 12-year-old, you wouldn't have used this word, eventually you have yep. some concept of genre. You have some concept of these are the things these stories have in common. Yeah. Uh, And depending on what that is, uh, it's, it it could be a very conservative John W. Campbell approach to every science fiction story has to look in some vague way, like a Heinlein story. Yeah. Or it could be uh, readers who entered the field reading um, KJ Parker or Rachel Swirsky or um, any number of other writers we could name who, uh, who, who don't really worry too much about these boundaries. Yeah. Um, and one of the things we've discovered on, in doing these podcasts is the number of writers um, who, at least in their own account, simply don't ask these questions.
0: Yeah, it's true. Interesting. I've been distracted, Gary, I have to tell you, while you're doing that, not just by my daughter's fantastical musical stylings in the cor- corridor, which sooner or later, I'm going to have to go out and ask it, and ask it. And but we have had a couple of questions back from our listeners, Gary. Oh, we have. actually. We have. Now, just, just for those of you who are listening to the podcast, It's on some at some other time than, you know, sort of right now, on the 15th of June, my time at 11.47 a.m., we did throw out a question to, well, an invitation to listeners to send questions uh-huh. via Twitter because we had no idea what we were going to talk to about. Uh, and somebody asked, Scott Polens of this parish asks the question do you see the more interesting work in the field happening in traditional venues or less traditional i.e., small press uh and over the last 10 years or so have you seen the core of the field shifting and if yes how so two, two separate questions though related both essay questions too. both essay questions and we, will we be marked on our off-the-cuff answers gary do you think We probably will be, but you can start. Which one would you like to take? Okay. Do I think more interesting work is happening in traditional venues or less traditional? Uh, First of all, there's a value judgment on what um, interesting constitutes. I think it's easy. Okay. I think it is easier for uh, small press venues to take a risk on interesting work because I don't think they have to invest the same amount of money or corporate risk in it. Mm -hmm. I think there's been a lot of very, very interesting work and we could point to work that's come out from Subterranean Press, uh, work that's come out from uh, PS Publishing, work that's come out from Tachyon, from Golden Griffin uh, over the years. And so there's a really, really critical uh, contribution from those sorts of uh, areas in bringing to light interesting work. And I think we need to appreciate that and applaud it. It seems to particularly tend towards short fiction. I don't think you're as likely to find, quote-unquote, interesting novels debuted in small presses, though it certainly has happened, and we can point to ones. I mean, Osama by Lavi Lavi Tidhar comes to mind uh, immediately in recent times and several of the works that he's done through P.S. Um, But I think we also have to allow that the, the editors working in the major publishing houses... Continue to try to include really interesting, challenging works of science fiction and fantasy in their lines. And at times they surprise us. You know, we've been surprised on the podcast when Daw picked up Nnedi Okoraforce, who fears death. Mm-hmm. Which yes. is a very, very interesting book and a major book, and came out from a completely traditional—I mean, a surprisingly traditional in some ways—market. Um, Same for Salad and Ahmed's *The Throne of the Crescent Moon*, which they published. And we can look at mm-hmm. Orbit doing Anne Lecky's book, and we could say, well, Anne Lecky's book is not incredibly experimental, but I have to say, within the form of mainstream science fiction and fantasy publishing, it's quite a challenging book to fit in. I think. So I don't. It think, does. So I don't think that the, the the traditional venues shy away from it. I think that the um, small presses and, and that sphere of publishing have more capacity to em- embrace interesting work and to some degree have, are already in a risk-taking area of, the, of, of publishing and have to take risks in order to continue. And I think that's to the benefit and the health of the field. So it's, my answer is sort of all over the shop.
1: What about you, Gary? Oh, I agree with everything you said. I, I
0: Yay! I was right.
1: I think that uh, part of the problem is, first of all, people working in. Trad- well, first of all, backing up before that, traditional publishing is one of those phrases which is a little bit too all-encompassing, a little bit too totalizing to really mean much anymore. It's like it's one of those phrases like Western medicine, which which mean, or corporate ethics. Uh, traditional means, as far as I can tell, that you are answerable to making a certain degree of profit to some higher corporate echelon than yourself. Um, whereas an independent press really wants to earn back what they spend on publishing books and they want to make a little bit of money, but an, a small press can publish 500 copies of a book sure. and make money on it. Uh, so, so, so that definition is, is reasonable. Um, I think you're right. I think that uh, a lot of uh, novels, because traditional presses, obviously want to reach the non-traditional mm-hmm. readers. A lot of novels do make it to the um, traditional presses. Short fiction, what is traditional and non-traditional in short fiction? Is Tor.com a traditional venue or a non-traditional venue?
0: <laughs> I guess you'd have to count it as a traditional venue.
1: It's kind of become the... Uh, you, you can't simply say online publication is non-traditional anymore.
0: No, not anymore. And I think that Tor.com, for all it has, it has a particular (laughs) sort of positioning and slant, um, is nonetheless a a fairly traditional venue in in, in a good way, you know. Mm. I would say we were talking about academic exercises earlier, and it's undeniably an important book. It's Mm. an interesting book, and it's not coming out from a traditional publisher. Uh, I mean, I would have thought there was a reasonable chance that uh, Orbit, K.J. Parker's normal publisher, would have published it, but it's only coming out, from, to my knowledge at least, from Subterranean Press, who is is K.J.'s normal pr- publisher for small press kind of stuff, and they've published a bunch of his work, or her work, but wouldn't have come out – I don't think it would have come out from a major press. So I don't think well, it's I, more – it's just
1: – That's a different category. I mean, we, we, we've talked about publishing short fiction – Individually, uh, such as the online venues or with print zines, um, and talking about publishing novels, short story collections, I think are almost owned by the small press now.
0: Now they are, yeah. Over right. the last twenty writers, years, it's gone that way. Yeah,
1: you know, writers who have major uh, major followings for their novels will go to short small press publishers. So, so I think um, that one way one way of answering the question is that. Uh, Single author collections, not necessarily anthologies, anthologies still go to mainstream presses a lot, but single author collections uh, where you get to see an author's development um, or you get to see, uh, well, yeah, uh, either a a relatively new author's development like Rachel Swirsky or a retrospective like Caitlin Kernan or like the current K.J. Parker thing. Uh, Those are things that are pretty much in the province of small presses now. And, uh, and they're, you're right. They're among the most valuable books we have, I think. In fact, I guess the way
0: I would now come around it to answer this is the small presses and non-traditional venues are the publishers of the most important short fiction in the field that we get, particularly in book form. Yes. Uh, and I would stress in book form. But the most interesting and challenging novels, by and large, come out from traditional markets. Um. And there's I not a that's... lot
1: that don't. I, 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 there are not a lot that don't, and I'm not sure. But again, um, one of the uh, novels which we've talked about, and we've talked to the author, is Sophia Samitar's mm-hmm. Stranger in a Laundry. Is small beer traditional or non traditional? I think for the purposes of this discussion, non traditional.
0: I would ha- also have to look at uh, Nike Selway's Repetta. As well, which yeah. has been incredibly well received uh, and is very interesting and came out from a non-traditional market. But by and large, I think it roughly holds true. I mean, it, it, all of these things are generalizations, but I think it pretty much holds through that mainstream publishing is staying out in front of it when it comes to to novel work. And it's partly because, as well, authors are going to try to place their novels, particularly with mainstream publishers, because that's where they're going to find the largest number of readers. And without, again, oversimplifying, writers want to be read, you know.
1: And I think there is kind of a canard uh, uh, at large in the field that that commercial publishers are simply trying to find... uh, the latest movie tie in or the latest YA dystopia or or in other words, the, the maximized profit, to some extent at a corporate level, they do need to do that. But the individual editors that you and I both know um, really want to do more than that. And if they can find something which is innovative and which is going to create a new trend, uh, they will go after it. Uh, And it, it doesn't always work, but the the idea that I've heard from, uh, from some people online, that that traditional publishers, New York publishers, uh, whether it's Tor or or, or or Orbert or or, or Del Rey or Galanx in England, whatever, that they shy away from taking chances, in my experience, simply isn't true. Um,
0: By and large, I think that's true. I mean, I I would also say, I guess, it is true that you're you're balancing a list is is the issue. I mean, I'm sure, well, I suspect, not I'm sure, I suspect if you talk to someone like Patrick Nielsen Hayden, he would say you're looking to balance the lists, and for every, you know, every Peter Watts, you're going to need a Alistair Reynolds or something. For every uh, stranger in a Laundria, you need a Robert Jordan, you know. But and also mm-hmm. a spectrum, because as a as a trade publisher, you, you know, you're not just speaking to uh, readers who are interested in the evolution of the field. You're talking talk, talk to a lot of yeah, casual readers, readers who don't self-identify as science fiction or fantasy readers. People have picked up Game of Thrones and want something kind of like it, all that sort of stuff, all of which is valid. What was the second part of the question? I'm going to get to that, but I will say, I think okay. we, we got a solid, solid B for that essay, Gary. Not more than a solid B, though. Okay, over the last 10 years or so, have you seen the core of the field shifting? And if yes, how? Now, that's an interesting question.
1: That's a very interesting question, because it implies, first of all, that there either is or once was a core of the field.
0: Okay, I think there's always been something that's been referred to as a core of the field. Now, whether it's the same thing as, a, a, you know, whether when Gar- I mean, Gardner does what to me is the great perpetuator per- perpetuator of the term and the idea of core science fiction. He's the one who talks about it over and over again. I'm not entirely sure that. He and I would draw the same picture if we were to sit down with sort of crayons and paper to try and draw it. But I think there is a concept, and I I think okay, I think maybe if there's a change in core science fiction, it's more retrospectively self, retroactively self-aware. You know, I think the the great obvious classic core science fiction novels of the current time are the James Corey Expanse series, Leviathan's Wake and its sequels, right? Right. Now, those books are very much aware of their own history. They are, to some extent, a very deliberate attempt to write bestseller, 70s-style to- SF. So they are a bit recursive. So I think a certain recursiveness in the core science fiction and self-awareness has has crept in over time. You know, when Heinlein wrote a Heinlein juvenile it was simply mm. a science fiction juvenile now when someone writes <laughs> a science fiction juvenile they may or may not be writing a Heinlein juvenile and they have that awareness that comes into it but I think the kind of and probably there's been some shift in the kind of subjects that are considered core science fiction though that's probably more over the last 30 years than the last 10 you know cyberspace has become part of core sf
1: mm-hmm. you but know, I think you're right the, 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 the time frame, the last 10 years is the hard part of the question. Yeah, yeah. Because you're you going back to, what, 2004? Yeah, uh, and that's not a long time. There was a, there was a time at which uh, you could almost assume talking to fans and friends and colleagues and critics and publishers and writers that there were sort of touchstone writers for each genre, in other mm-hmm. words. The core, the core of science fiction for many years, for many readers, was Heinlein. The yeah. core of fantasy was Tolkien. The core of horror was Lovecraft. And so, you, how how far you diverge from those sort of um, central uh, poles determined on determined how close you were. Now, though, I don't think those poles have been that dominant uh, at all in the last ten years. Yeah, um, I, they're they're still there. But the core of the field changing since 2004, that's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, well,
0: I don't have a good, solid answer. I don't think it's shifted that much in that period of time. I think a little, a little bit more recursive, but other than that, I don't think it's, sh- it's shifted a great deal in the last 10 years.
1: Well, I, I think what I have seen in the last 10 years, the recursiveness is a good point, because when you look at um, a writer like uh, Lavi Titter, uh, or, for example, when we were talking with Anne Lecky, and she was talking about her admiration for Jack Vance, there is a willingness to be more openly recursive about sure. earlier science. And there's a sense on the part of some surprisingly young writers and Titter comes to mind again because of the story of his that uh, essentially is a kind of homage to C.L. Moore's Shamblo. Uh, that there's a there, there's a sense of wanting to celebrate the field. Yeah. And I think there's a sense of wanting to rediscover what once was thought of as the core of the field. Yeah. Um, and. I think that's true. I, th- I think it's a very healthy kind of thing. Um, when you mention something like uh, the James S. A. Corey novels, and I think about those, or I think about, uh, I don't know, in fantasy, the, I don't know, say the Pat Rothfuss novels, the name of the series. <clears throat> those are novels you probably could pluck a reader from the mid to late 1950s, say the 1950s yeah. or 1960s. Pluck one of those readers into today's world, and they would get the James S. A. Corey novels. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I don't think they could have a problem with it. No, uh, they might have a problem with something like Osama, which is very metafictional and Sure, very sure. Abusive.
0: Hmm, it's interesting. I also wonder if um, has inclusiveness changed the core. I don't think it's quite got there yet, but I think it is.
1: Um, you mean diversity in yeah, terms yeah, yeah, of yeah, the... yeah, 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 yeah. Variety of cultures and writers and ethnicities and gender yeah. identities and things. Um, there's a question. I'm sure it's of course it's changed the field. I mean, there's no doubt it's changed the field. But again, has it changed the field more in the last 10 years than it has in the last 40 years?
0: And, um, and also at, at at the core rather than at its peripheries. I mean, like we were talking earlier about K. J. Parker and what is genre and what is not, and that's very much mm-hmm. edge case work, right? Um, it's not core of fantasy at all. And nor would we argue, I think, that say this, you know, the the story we've talked about more than any other in the history of this podcast, Karen Fowler's story from um, Eclipse Three, the Pelican Bar. We would Arc- never argue Arc- that's core science fiction either. You know, no, that's the field changing on its peripheries and what kind of thing, which is healthy and normal. Uh, but it's something to think about more. Got a couple other questions to bounce through though before we go, okay. and we are getting towards the end of our podcast, amazingly. Cranky Nick a.k.a. Nick Evans of this podcast, of this uh, uh, parish, asks, can you guarantee both of you are wearing pants as you podcast?
1: Can we guarantee it?
0: Well, I think the answer is I'm more disturbed about the fact that you want a guarantee than whether we can guarantee it or not. That's a good question. That's a good, very good response. Absolutely. <laughs> cranky nick does go on to ask the question do we have any thoughts on harper voyager australia finally jumping onto the urban fantasy bandwagon and hmm i actually have some thoughts i'm not sure that they're public thoughts um i think that since that the voyager imprint was founded in 1995 you're in Australia. It's now gone on to become the international Voyage uh, Harper imprint for science fiction and fantasy, uh, uh-huh. supplanting Eos in the U.S. and uh, whatever else. Uh, it was founded primarily on an epic fantasy basis. Uh, the the great success story of early Harper Voyager was uh, finding Sarah Douglas, who became a bestseller in this country and sold yeah. well around the world. Probably from the Early to, sometime in the early 2000s, it began to fall into a bit of a rut in terms of the kind of work it was choosing to publish and the kind of packaging it used. Particularly, uh, it used a particular kind of rather rather murky, dark, stylized kind of cover approach, which I think towards the end of the 2000s was beginning to lose traction in the marketplace. Though I mm. you know, I, I may be wrong. I'm not an absolute expert on this. And it was what th- well three years ago, I think. Well, okay. Harper Voyager was founded by Louise Thirtle, who was the major editor for it for its first three or four years, and got it really successfully boosted. She was my, uh, she was the acquiring editor who acquired my first ever anthologies. She was replaced by Stephanie Smith, who was a long-time uh, HarperCollins editor at the time, with no real background in, the, in science fiction or fantasy, who became quite familiar with the field and saw it through until the. Uh, Early 2010s, I think it was, but 2011 to 2012, she stepped down and she was replaced by the current editor, uh, Rich, re, uh, Rochelle Fen- Rachel Fernandez, I think it is. I hope it's Fernandez, oh. uh, who came from their digital area. Uh, I think there's been less commercial success for a lot of their genre titles in the, in re- in the last few years. And the, the book which Nick is referring to is the first from. Oh, i blanked on the guy's name, though I know him. That's terrible. Uh, but anyway, is, 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 is a first urban fantasy. I think um, probably my main thought on it would be that it's a little bit too late to be joining the urban fantasy bandwagon. You know, it's like it, it's there. It's been there for so long that the, the book is by Alan Baxter, that's right, uh, that I don't know that it means much other than to suggest that Voyager is still is, has not found its own, well, hasn't found its modern feet as a imprint with a real style and approach and that it will be looking to find a way to combine the books that it imports from overseas with some kind of local content that will give it some kind of unique structure. Um, what that's going to be, I don't know. It's still, I think, trying to find its feet with packaging. There's been a lot of comment on the, about the, the packaging of the new Alan Baxter novel. And I know of at least one store that's refused to carry the book because of the packaging. Really? Yeah. Um, so I guess it, it, it's too early to say anything definitive. I wish them commercial success. I like Rochelle. I had dinner with her as, as a caveat, and I guess a declaration of interests uh, at last year's uh, Australian NetCon in Canberra, and she's a lovely person uh, and hopefully will do very, very well. I believe the Alan Baxter book in question is the first one she's acquired as an editor. I will say that I have noticed as a general trend there's not that much ac- acquisition happening in the major houses in science fiction and fantasy in Australia that I see outside the YA arena. So Orbit, I think, finally moved its its acquisition into Australia. I think it finally moved it back out again because that wasn't successful. Uh, So they're not acquiring locally anymore. And if you want to acquire an Australian book, it would go to Tim Holman's New York office and then back rather than be acquired locally. Voyager still acquire locally, but they're acquiring, I think, a lot less than they used to, and they've moved away. There's a v- very strong evolution in Voyager that I noticed in the mid 24 to 2010 period towards romantic fantasy. They seem to have moved away from that. Now, al- along the way, they've had some found some really interesting writers, uh, but they haven't maintained as an imprint. I think so, like Glenda Lark, who's moved on to Orbit now, is really quite int- a really interesting writer, and. Tansy Roberts, who, who we know, who's won the Hugo last year as a best fan writer, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So it's not that Voyage is bankrupt, but they're, they're running around looking for – well, not running around. They're, they're looking for ways to evolve and change. It'll be interesting to see how this Alan Baxter book is received by the world at large. It's uh, too early to say yet. So that's my, my commentary for what it's worth.
1: Well, you know a lot more about this than I do, and I I learned a lot just listening to you now. I mean, my sense is that there are two questions here. One has to do with um, the Australian market and the uh, viability of Australian writers breaking out into a world market in the way that the Garth Nix or Sean Williams or Mm -hmm. Margot Lannigan has done. Uh, And the second issue uh, is the one you raised at the beginning of of, of your comments, which is, is, is there still an urban fantasy bandwagon? Is it still there in that sense or is it kind of like a urban fantasy caboose Um,
0: (laughs) i would have thought it's more like a it's, it's like looking at the amazon river and calling it an urban fantasy caboose um gary um I'm not a great urban fantasy reader generally, so my comment should be taken with a pinch of salt, but it does seem to be a very mainstream thing in the commercial success of our genre. And if you go to the local book, local bookstore and you look at your science fiction and fantasy section, the books that aren't called Game of Thrones are quite often some kind of urban fantasy.
1: Well, this is something I think is going on uh, at a minor level and maybe not consciously in the field. I think there's, there's some kind of a struggle going on for what we might call the heart and soul of urban fantasy. Uh... And to some extent, I think this is a business of reclaiming urban fantasy Mm -hmm. from its generic trappings. Uh, We've talked before about how uh, over a period of decades, the term has changed. I mean, at one point, it uh, would refer to Charles Williams novels, which were fantasy novels set in London. At one point, it would refer to Megan Lindholm's The Wizard of the Pigeons, which I think is one of the great urban fantasies in the sense that it is really urban and really a fantasy. Uh, (laughs) Yep. And then you've got a whole group of London novels, the most recent of which is Paul Cornell's new series. Yes. Savage*, is the most recent one. Um, that are solid adventure novels, um, with uh, in this case a paranormal uh, squad of police detectives, that are clearly trying to move the urban back into urban fantasy and, 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 and redefine the field as something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it, that it really has been all along. I mean, this is yeah. it's, it's, it's not news. I mean, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere was an urban fantasy, which appeared somewhat before the term urban fantasy did. So I think <coughs> my problem is that the term urban fantasy now is, is sort of beginning to diffuse a little bit. It doesn't mean the one thing it meant even five years ago.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I think you're right. The other thing I'd mention is we were asked by our commenters to for any comment commentary we might have on the recently presented Dittmar and Shadow Awards. Uh, the Shadow Awards being the Australian
1: Horror Awards. Oh, okay. The shadows um, I did not. Think
0: about. Yeah. And there's also the uh, Victorian Science Fiction Fantasy Awards were presented this this just recently as well. I would just suffice to say I've got very little commentary, but we probably should note on the podcast who won since it was quite recent. Yeah, sure. So the winners of the this year's uh, Ditmar Awards were uh, David McDonald, Tansy Rayner Roberts, and Tahani Wesley for the, the reviewing New Who series, and Galactic Suburbia episode 87 saga spoilerific book club by the ineffable Krasenstein Pierce and Ubiquitous Rayner Roberts won the William mm-hmm. Atheling Jr. Award for criticism or review. So that's, I believe, a series of blog posts and a podcast episode, which I think is kind of interesting that they won. Uh-huh. Best New Talent went to Xena Shapter. Uh, <laughs> Best Fan pub- Publication in Any Medium went to the Galactic Chat Podcast. Uh, Sean uh, Sean Wright, Alex Pierce, Helen Stubbs, David McDonald, and Mark Webb being the podcasters. And they get our con- our congratulations. We were also nominated in that category, Gary. Absolutely. So. Uh, Best fan artist went to Kathleen Jennings for her body of work, including Illustration Friday. Illustration Friday being a regular new illustration she posts every Friday on her blog. Uh At tanaudel.wordpress.com, he says, from memory, T-A-N-A-U-D-E-L. Best fan writer, Sean Wright, for body of work, including reviews in Adventures of a Blogonaut, And Sean is the guy who interviewed me for, in fact, the Galactic Chat podcast series, which was nice. Best Artwork went to a longtime friend of the podcast, Sean Tan, for his Brilliant Rules of Summer, which is a fantastic book. Uh, There was a bunch of other things, very worthy nominees in the category, including Kat Sparks for her cover work for her own collection, Kathleen Jennings for her artwork for Clips Online, and so on. Uh, Best Collected Work went to Kat Sparks for her collection, The Bride Price, which came out last year from uh Ticonderoga Publications. She was up for, against all kinds of interesting stuff, including Thred, Dyer's Asymmetry, Kristen McDermott's Caution, Small Parts, uh, Joe Anderton's The Bone Chime. So, Bone Chime song. So, some good stuff. But congratulations to Cat of this parish, one of our regular listeners. So, we're very happy to see her walk away with the Ditmar Award. yay Cat. Best short story went to the ubiquitous Cat Sparks for Scar. Amazing. I think, I think I'm pretty sure she's won more Dittmar Awards than anybody else in the history of Dittmar Awards. Uh, I was particularly pleased to see Kirsten McDermott pick up the Best Novella Award for The Home for Broken Dolls from her Caution Sm- Contained Small Parts collection, which was brilliant. And also, you know, another story from that was nominated. So it's great. Mm-hmm. And Best Novel went to Fragments of a Broken Land, on Dead by Robert Hood from Wildside Press being a, uh, you know, nift kind of dark fantasy. Up against a whole bunch of other stuff, including Ink Black Magic by the ubiquitous t- Tansy Rainer Roberts, The Beckoning by Paul Collins, Truck Song by Andrew McRae, and The Only Game in the Galaxy, The Maximus Black Files 3 by Paul Collins. Oh. And just as with the Hugos, there are ancillary awards. So I shall tell you that the winner oh, yeah. of the ancillary awards, the Nora K. Hemming Award... Which, I'm going to, uh, which is for, I guess, works of uh, feminist and gender interest. nor uh-huh. Hemming being the first major woman science fiction writer in Australia in the 1950s. Okay. I'm not going to talk the name- about the evil secret around that, but anyway. Uh, and that went to Repetto by, by Nikki Solway, or Nike Solway. Excellent. Which is great. Congratulations to her. And the Peter McNamara Award, not to be confused with the Peter McNamara Award, there being two of them, Really? There are two Peter McNamara Awards in Australia. There is uh, the Peter McNamara Conveners Award, which is presented as part of the Arialis Awards. That's what uh, you received. Each year. That is indeed the one that I won this year, yes. And then there is the Peter McNamara Award, which is presented as part of the – well, related to the Dittmar Awards and is also for life achievement and major contributions to the field in this country. And is presented by the McNamara family. Okay,
1: so this is the same Peter McNamara? Yes. Okay. Who you Who you've heard of. Because you got this award called Peter McNamara. Peter and McNamara was...
0: was an editor and publisher who founded his own press in the uh, in Australia in the mid-1980s, Ophelion. Ah. And Ophelion magazine was the first thing they published, very important magazine, put out six issues, uh, did all the first uh, the first early Terry Dowling stories, the major ones, the Tom Tyson stories, that kind of stuff, Sean McMullen's those sort of things. And then in the early 1990s, 1991, around then, started publishing... Uh, small press books at a significant kind of level, uh, ultimately put out about 15 books or so or more. Uh, and I mean, they were properly published, like three, 4,000 copies, put out to bookstores everywhere in the country. And there were you know, the, the George Turner's collection, Sean McMullen's first books, Sean oh, Williams' first it? books. Ophelion. Ophelion
1: was, pub- oh, okay, was a publisher of the books as well as the, okay.
0: And Peter McNamara, who died of brain cancer, I think it was, in the 2000s was the, was the the founder and the award was named after him. And he's a lovely guy and a good friend of mine. Uh-huh. Uh so anyway, and this year's Peter McNamara award for major contribution goes to went to Garth Nix, who is a dear That's friend what? of this podcast and someone we all love and adore. And you know, the only thing that I could say about the award is it was disgracefully overdue because he was such an, you know, a worthy recipient of it. He's been a major supporter of of the field here as well as, you know, his own work has been incredibly significant locally. And then his activities in the field have been very important. So well, long overdue and well-deserved, so yeah.
1: Excellent, well, congratulations, Garth. You and, mentioned very briefly, uh, yep. and this is a question we can almost end on because it's curiosity and I could ask it after the podcast. But yep. You mentioned the George Turner collection. And when I began reviewing George, ten, George Turner was a monumental figure in Australia and really in world science fiction. And I guess my question is, is he still a force in Australia, in the Australian science fiction world? I don't think so, he, so at all. He,
0: really? Uh, I think the last 15 years have wiped away a lot of the, the uh, w- awareness and profile of his generation of science fiction and fantasy writers in this country. I don't uh-huh. think that the George Turners even, or even the Terry Dowlings and the Damien Brodericks are re- regarded as widely as they once were. Which is unfortunate. Uh, I mean, not to forget that, I mean, George started off by r- winning a very major mainstream award for one of his novels, The Cupboard Under the Stairs, which won the Miles, Fran- Miles Franklin Award,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is a very important mainstream award here in Australia in the 1960s, he won. Uh, but I think most of his novels, if not all of them, are now out of print. Uh, I think the only oh. book that's probably in print is The Sea and the Summer is in print from uh, Golanse in their Masterworks series. Yeah. I think the short story collection of pursuit of miracles is out of print now. So yeah, he, he, he's ripe for rediscovery.
1: It struck me at the time when I started reading him and I reviewed one or two of his books and, and Charles Brown was an admirer of his, that he was seemed to be on his way to becoming a kind of not, not thematically or in any other way other than a sort of cultural position, kind of an Australian Ian Banks. Um,
0: It might've happened, but, Fate has not.
1: It didn't go. It didn't no, go that way.
0: I mean, I think without sort of making it. I think there are reasons for it, you know. I think that mm. uh, there was a need to culturally redress certain balances in our field, particularly here in Australia. Well, and it was quite valid, but I think that in doing so, some things have been obscured, and that happens. And hopefully, the balance will come out. But mm. I need to go. I've got to go oh, and I take my family did, out did, for I... lunch and. I've got to go for a shower first, having slept in terribly late. I can't believe I did. So it's been a joy talking to you, Gary.
1: As usual, and we will talk again
0: next week. We will, and hopefully we will work out what we're doing sometime during the week so we can maybe invite some guests because we don't actually have anybody down for next week, Gary.
1: Oh, We'll figure out something. We'll if not, out. we'll figure out something to talk about.
0: We can do this again. Okay. All
1: Until right. then, I'll talk to you next long. week. Okay. And Take care. Bye. Take care.